Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. We are at episode 109, and today's guests are the founders of Wistia, Brendan Schwartz and Chris Savage. Wistia is a company that creates video software for growing businesses, and they've helped over 500,000 of them. What is truly amazing about the Wistia story is how the business has grown with a very limited amount of outside capital, and they've gone on to build one of the marquee B2B software brands in the industry. Here's a very random fun fact that I absolutely have to share about Wistia. You know when you go over to a team section of a company's website, then you mouse over the photo and it switches over to a different picture? Well, Wistia invented this style, and in the very early days of the company, their team page went viral and it ended up landing a bunch of customers. It is a very simple yet effective example of Wistia's creativity, and over the long term, their approach to content marketing is probably one of the best examples out there. So if you could sum up this episode in one word, it would be transparency, which is a trait that I admire about Brendan and Chris. They share lots of stories about getting the business off the ground to all the trials and tribulations and lots of amazing advice. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Brendan and Chris's background prior to starting Wistia, all the details about how they founded Wistia and started to gain traction, a cool story about how they had to make a hard decision by saying no to HBO as a potential customer and why that decision ended up being an important one for their future, why they didn't take on traditional venture capital to fund the growth of the business, and what led them down the path of taking on $17 million in debt financing last year, how they have built a very strong culture that is centered around transparency, plans for future growth, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. This is exciting because you have two options for catching this episode. You can either listen to the audio from your favorite podcast app, or for this special episode, you can watch the full video of this interview. The video version is classic as the background from one of their in-house studios at Wistia looks like a blockbuster store with real VCR movies in the background. Don't miss it. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Brendan and Chris. Brendan, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks. So we have to start off. Um, so if people are watching this on video, they're going to see a background. And I know you guys have a couple studios in, in your office, uh, one of which I'm looking at. And I thought this was a green screen, but it's an actual legit studio where it looks like I'm uh, going back to a Blockbuster video <laughs> store right now. That's exactly right. This is effectively our own Blockbuster. Yeah. What, um, um, what, do, you, what do you feel like watching? I, I love Ferris Bueller. That was one of my favorites growing up. Where's Ferris? Where is? I think it's down there on the right, kind of uh, the right of the screen. Yep. Where is it? Five, six no, down. Six down. Oh, it's right there. There it is. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Yes, it's real. These are. They're all real. Let me tell you. Yes, here. So, what are the parts? <laughs> one of the perks of working at Wistia is you have an unlimited supply of. Uh, VCR tapes. I had to rethink what were those things called. VCR tapes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If only you had something to play them on. <laughs> actually, I think I, so my wedding video was on VCR. So I still actually have a VCR for that reason. We probably should convert that to. Yeah, you, I think you should digitize that. It's time to protect it. <laughs> Put that on the to-do list. Uh, well, thanks again for joining us. What I want to do is obviously, um, you know, talk about the great story of Wistia, but obviously talk about, you know, your backgrounds prior to starting this company. So, uh, Brendan, why don't you start off just sharing your background before, uh, you know, partnering up with, uh, with Chris? Sure. It's a bit of a funny question because we've been, do, we, we started Wistia almost 13 years ago. So my 
background, <laughs> but Wistia is mostly my background at this point. Uh, we started Wistia a year out of college. We met each other um, at Brown. We were in the same freshman year hall. Um, and we did a lot of um, maybe, it would be generous to call it business planning. It was more like <laughs> Uh, get scheming. rich quick, yeah. scheming. Um, we worked on a lot of projects together in college. I did a lot of software stuff. Chris was a, a film major or at Brown, it's called art semiotics. Um, Got to keep it different, keep it weird. Yeah, so we worked together on a lot of things. Uh, not, they were like not a fit. It was like projects that he was working on or for things that I was doing. That's like how we got started working together. And then a year out of college, we got more serious about starting something that wasn't a scheme. Um, and starting a business. So, well, you were actually at Agency Port. I remember Agency Port for. Uh, oh, you like know, Agency software, Port. right? Insurance software. Yes. Yeah. I I worked there because the CEO was a Brown grad. That's how I got connected to that company. I didn't know much about insurance. Um, you know, that's not like the uh, shiniest industry to go into out of college. But <laughs> I learned a ton. I was there a year, but I learned a lot about how to. Like it was, it was a small company. It grew a lot while I was there. I'm still really good friends with a lot of the people that I worked with. Um, yeah, that was a really big learning experience. Surprise! Not many people know Agency Port, though. So it just shows you my, uh, you know, the, the the years I've been in the tech industry of Boston, going back to '98. <laughs> so way back, way back. Uh, Chris, how about your background prior? I mean, Brendan covered a bunch of it, but basically did film and video in college. Um, and I worked on a project that was a feature documentary for four years and it was very cool to work on because it was a very, very small team, but we got it to theaters ourselves and won an Emmy and all this stuff. And so I had that experience of being on a tiny team and seeing, um, seeing what the impact a tiny team could have. And then I come from a family that has a lot of uh, computer science and tech. My dad is a professor of computer science and a notorious early adopter. And so, um, you know, the first day, a DVD player came out. We got one until I swore I'd never touch a VHS again. Uh, <laughs> I broke that, unfortunately. Uh, but just like grew up around that. And so um, it was funny in college, Brennan had this project he worked on that was basically blogging software before blogging software. And um, we all got really excited about it. I had a big launch party and we're writing for it and stuff. And so we worked on projects and it was kind of funny. It's funny to look at how much Wistia has just been a combination of like both of our interests um, and creative passions, which actually continues to be true at this point. Got it. Yeah, because uh, uh, you talk about the early adopter, and like you used to get early access to things from Microsoft too, like Microsoft Flight Simulator, and like your family was uh, tied into the, the Microsoft world too. That's right? exactly right. You've done your research. Yeah. <laughs> um, my former brother-in-law was very early at Microsoft. Um, it was Bill Gates's right hand for a while. And so we got the Xbox before it came out on Flight Simulator. And I you was, had a Zune in college? I had a Zune. Yeah, I had all had the, no way. Yes, it's <laughs> true. I then also had an iPod, but I did have a Zune. Uh, and yeah, it was just, it was interesting to be around like just beta testing things um, and seeing stuff before it came out. And like that became it's funny, even to this day, I feel like I watch startups the way that lots of people watch sports. You know, it's like rooting for different teams and like trying to guess at like where they're going to go based on like who they've hired and all that kind of stuff. All right, well, let's carry things a little bit forward. So at, at what point were you like, okay, let's start a company together. And what was kind of the original, like legit, you know, ideas that you were throwing around of actually building something? Yeah, the the first thing that got us going was, 
we basically saw that the technology that lets online video work was changing really quickly. And it used to be very difficult to make online video work. So you had to either have like a QuickTime license and you could encode to QuickTime, but the only people who could watch your videos would be people who had Macs and the right version of QuickTime installed, or you'd have to encode to a real player that looked like crap, or you could maybe encode to Flash if you had like a pirated version of Flash. But it was, it was very, videos on the web were very inconsistent. They played inconsistently. Bandwidth was not there um, to play things back quickly. And then we both saw YouTube and realized because there was many like YouTube clones all at the same time, that there was a fundamental shift in the technology. And it turns out there's open source tools to do the encoding. And we looked at that and thought, this is gonna change video on the web. Um, a lot of the communities, filmmaking communities I'd been a part of never really took off. And it seemed like this was the reason. And so we started coming up with ideas that would make made sense in that world. Um, and the first idea was, and the one that convinced us to start the company was we would make a filmmaking competition website. And we would basically try to connect big brands with uh, filmmakers and a big brand who had wanted filmmakers to make the best commercial or the best trailer or whatever, they would get uh, promotion from people making user-generated content for them and then the filmmakers would get the benefit of um, having their, their ad, if there was an ad, for example, be seen in front of a much larger audience. And it seemed like a win-win for everybody. Um, we also made the classic mistake in starting, which was like, came up with an incredibly complex scheme of like rules and uh, how very, we- Very, very product focused. Yes. And before we even started building the product, thankfully we realized, you know, this actually seems like more of a marketing and sales challenge, which we knew very little about either of those two things. We had no relationships with big brands. We did not know a lot of filmmakers who would use this or how to get in front of them. And we decided, the, the other thing that happened was there was, uh, a company, what was it called? Bix? Bix, Something yeah. Like yeah. That. It's another company that we found that was doing the exact same thing. And then right after we started, it was sold to Yahoo. Mm. And this was very early in <laughs> we were starting a business. Yeah. We thought if you had any competition, that was a bad sign and we were terrified <laughs> of it. We did not know that that's probably a sign there's a market there. And also that if a company gets sold to a much larger company like Yahoo, it probably is. That's usually really when it's anywhere. dying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that scared us off from that idea, which was probably for the best. And this is context wise, like 2006, 2007 or? Yeah. This is like the summer of 2006 when we started. Got it. Okay. So, okay. So you abandoned that idea. So what, what was next? We had a few um, very short lived things that some of them took off. We had a website. This is like on our road to Wistia. We had a website called Ironing the Flag. Um, dot com, which was a domain that we had already purchased because we were just anytime we came across a good domain, we bought it. That was a countdown. We were just having a conversation one day. And we're like, have we been in Iraq longer than we were in World War II? We go and look. By sheer luck, we're three days away from being in Iraq longer than we were in World War II. Mm -hmm. So we just made a countdown on this site, uh, like counting down till the three till that moment when it would be longer. And it went viral. We put it on Reddit, yeah. which had just started that, that summer. Same summer. Yeah, it went viral, um, and was written about like all over the place, and um, tons and tons of traffic to this thing, which was super interesting because you know that first idea was really complicated, and we had all these complicated rules and systems and product. And here's an idea that we came up with and launched the same day, and now you know eighty thousand people have seen it, and you're like, huh, maybe. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't make a super complicated thing and you should make something that's like more relevant. Um, 
And we did that, but there was no way to really make money with it. And that was also, it was in the wake of this like crazy complicated idea. We thought before getting to whatever our actual business would be, we needed to do these warm up yeah. projects. Yeah. So this, we had some, we had something else along the way. And then we finally settled on building a portfolio website for artists, mostly for filmmakers. So it was still centered around video. It was to the problem Chris had, well, kind of allude, like YouTube had really poor quality at the time. People who are filmmakers didn't want to put their stuff up there. So we built a place that was a really elegant experience for them to make a beautiful portfolio. Again, uh, you know, you might laugh. We're starting a business. Artists, maybe not the best target, don't uh, have, aren't willing to uh, purchase a lot of software typically. They're called starving artists for a reason. Yeah. So. <laughs> and we were essentially starving artists making a site for starving artists. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't a great viable uh, business. And we also, again, didn't know very much about the marketing side of things. So we were still kind of in that mode of if you build it, they will come. We begged them to come and only got about maybe 500, 500 people yeah. to use it. But who really liked the site. Like the product was cool. The tech was cool. But that was like a good early lesson. And it was basically a failure. Uh, thankfully, not a lot of people were, were watching it at the time. But in that, you know, basically how important marketing is to a company's success. Okay, well, so to set the stage, you know, you talked about YouTube a few times, and, and you know, at this point, you know, they were acquired by Google for you know one point six billion or some you know massive amount back in that day and era. So you knew video was still something that was here. Um, you know, it was um, I guess considered early. I mean, mm -hmm. kind of hard to put an exact time frame around that. But so, what led you down the path of creating? this more of, uh, of what Wistia, you know, is today or was originally? Yeah, so we were running out of money. Um, we had very meager savings that only lasted us because we were living together in a 10-person house and sharing food with all our roommates and they weren't eating most of the meals, so we were getting most of the benefit. Uh, but it was very, we were living on nothing, effectively, and um, we knew we would run out of the, the little nothing we had. And so we had to, we had to figure out a way to make a viable business um, and this whole time, you know, we'd spent a year focused on video and we'd been going to lots of events, trying to meet people and just commiserate and talk about our failure. And um, through that, we kept meeting startups and other companies. People were at big companies that wanted to work at startups and they, people were saying, oh yeah, we have all these video challenges. Can you help us? And so we were so focused on artists. We kept saying, no, 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 no. And then at some point we said, maybe, maybe we should talk. Businesses do have some money. Yeah. We want to keep working together. Yeah. Maybe we should take a look at that. Um, and we ended up getting, uh, talking to a medical device company that was wanted to have a, they were studying videos around the world um, of clinical trials. So they were like inserting this medical device in the human body, doing clinical trials in Europe and South America. And video was actually the evidence of how the surgery went. And that's what they would look at to update their device. And they were sending DVDs. And they, they'd heard of, about what we were doing, so we knew someone was working there. Um, and we got in there and they're like, we want some way to do this faster or better, can you help us? And we'd actually in our portfolio site been building this thing to let people privately share video. And we'd done that because we knew, from my experience in the filmmaking world that like, you have this unfinished video every day and you need to get feedback on it and you print it to DVD and you ship it to somebody. And actually if it was like a easier, more beautiful looking thing, that's not FTP, um, that you could make that faster and secure and, and instantaneous. And so we talked to the medical device company about that. They got really excited about it. 
Um, they told us they would just hire us as consultants uh, to build this thing. We said, no, we want you to be a customer, um, made up some pricing. They went for it and um, they signed up and we actually didn't have that product because we had this portfolio thing and it didn't make sense to have the medical device company use a filmmaking portfolio site. So they said they would sign up and we built it over the course of two weeks, the first version. Um, and yeah. they that was up. A, such a different experience from the, if you build it, they will come where we were very, we'll build this beautiful product. That'll be great to, we sold something before we really had the product yeah. and we built what was effectively the bare minimum, but they were so delighted by it because it solved their problem. That was a very addicting feeling yes. for us. That was a huge shift in how we thought about building a business. And then it was, it's, it felt slow back then, but in hindsight, it was actually pretty fast. But actually the month after that, we got our second customer, which was a um, production house. And then we got our third customer, which was like a giant company using us for training. And then we got our fourth and it started to happen. Um, and it turned out we were competing with DVDs, which made it easy to compete. <laughs> uh, and we continued on that way for about a year and then raised some, our first angel rounds, hired two more folks and continued to like iterate on the model, um, iterate on our marketing and strive for, um, you know, growing the business. Let's talk about the marketing side because you guys have always had this way of figuring out marketing and making it very, uh, you know, fun, interesting, and oftentimes viral, which, you know, people are always trying to figure out how do we make something viral? Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it a true statement to say on your, on the website, the photos for the team members, you guys were the first ones to make those interactive where if you hover over the person changes from, you know, being serious to having a you know, different image. That's right. Um, we were the first to do that. And it's, it's funny how these things happen, but in that case, we previously had four people on our team page. It was us and two people we'd hired. It was, but it wasn't even called a team page. Yeah. It's called management. Yeah. It was the management page. No one to manage. Yes. Yeah. All four people are managers. Yes. <laughs> Implying that we had a giant company. We th we were trying to pretend to be like a big company, which of course, when you look at that, you're like, this is a tiny company. We couldn't see that. So we gave up trying to pretend. And we'd hired two more folks and like they needed something to send their parents that made this look like a real thing. So we took photos in front of a whiteboard and put it up there. And as a joke, Brendan had it so that if you, um, he added an Easter egg to the page that if you type dance, it would start playing girl talk music and that would switch between the two photos. And that went viral. <laughs> and then of course, two weeks later, we got a bunch of customers and we're all like, what's going on? And it was, we had a two week trial. And so people had found our team page and then discovered what the product was. Um, and we started to figure out, wow, like people don't just buy products because of the products, they buy products because of the company. They buy products because of the brand. They buy products because thing, they feel a connection. And that, that was kind of the first thing that set us off towards figuring out what, what marketing is. Yeah, and that was kind of like the foundation that you've built on even to today. Um, you know, because you, have you know created these um, you know uh, like you, like content marketing is something that's come into the fold several years ago, but you guys are early on as far as creating highly relevant um, content for other people to use, like how to make better videos, right? Yeah. Like the lighting I'm using in this studio was from a Wistia video that showed that's me awesome. how to go to Home Depot and buy an affordable lighting kit that works amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah, that was again from we we discovered that somewhat by accident in that we were making videos about the product 
people were not that interested in it except for people who were actually using the product. But in making those videos, people would ask us, how did you do, what lights are you using? They'd ask us things about the production of the video. Um, and then Chris Levine, who's been with us a really long time, who helped us, who built the studio, helped us set up the shot. You just met him prior to this. Um, it took us a lot of convincing to convince him to teach people how to do that because that's where his background, he's a videographer. That's how he was making his living. He's like, I can't tell people my secrets. We're like, but this is what people want to know. Like if we tell them about this, they'll learn from us. It's a long-term play. Like you said, content marketing is not, you know, it's not something that you will get short-term rewards from, but we just were getting those questions so much. We just wanted to help people. We started doing that. And those were the, those videos got so much more engagement and views than anything where we were trying to, sell to people directly. Now, you started getting traction with the business and you land this massive, you know, big customer called HBO. So how did you land HBO and what were you doing for them? They were, ne they were never a customer. Okay. But we, when Chris said we started to get early traction, that was like this like switch flipped. We had the medical device company. We had a few other people. We were on the phone through this networking. We found ourselves on the phone with a talent agent in Hollywood who had a connection to the head of production at HBO. And he looked at what we had built and said, towards it, we're competing with DVDs. HBO had a huge problem. Um, they called the Tom Hanks problem. And so after a day of shooting, they have these dailies, all the stuff that they shot for the day. They would have a courier take the DVD stack of DVDs, get on a plane, go to Ireland where Tom Hanks apparently has a castle and would deliver these and say, here you are, Mr. Hanks, here are your DVDs. And this and he would like watch the Band of Brothers Batman. series that he was doing with them, right? <laughs> yeah, it was Band of Brothers at yeah. that time. Yeah. yeah, not an efficient process. Yeah, but it was cool because, so we built this first version of Wistia. They were using it. They were uploading like things from The Sopranos, dailies, like things that no one's ever seen, behind the scenes, stuff like that. This was delightful to us. Which is, it's very delightful. We're really and, into video. Yes, and we were really pumped, and we had a big contract we put in front of them and um, flew out to L.A., met with their head of production in person, probably the coolest guy I've ever met or will ever meet. Like, he jumped it, literally jumped onto the counter in this uh, meeting room, like wearing a leather bomber jacket. With like, sunglasses, sunglasses on. It was completely it was dark insane. in the room. It was Like insane. some fog rolled in, I think, when he, yeah. he opened the door. We were wearing suits because we thought that's what business was. Very um, ill-fitting suits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was funny. We, were, we had the deal and they wanted to do it. And actually, the story is that we ended up saying no to it. Um, and we walked away, uh, even though it was like three quarters of a million dollar a year deal. Um, and we walked away from it because there was a lot of things that they wanted us where they wanted the, they wanted the solution to be on premise. So they wanted to have like servers at HBO. We're three months into Wistia effectively. Like we can't do this without moving to LA. So we'd have to move to LA to get HBO as a customer. And then we knew that if they were that big of a customer, they're basically our only customer. And so whatever they asked would probably have trouble not doing. And we would, we were, it would be amazing in the short term, but in the long term, it would probably set us onto a path where we're building an enterprise business and we end up hopefully with like eight customers, which you could build a company there, but that was just not, that was not in that first year. That's not what we, we had been excited about. That's not what we had kind of learned. And so it was a hard decision, but we ended up saying no to it and walking away from that. Yeah, a sizable uh, contract. I mean, for that type of revenue at the stage of your business, I mean, that was it's been really huge. Yeah. Um, and you know, we were raising that angel round, our first angel round while that was happening. So all these angel investors were seeing 
this deal. HBO deal. Yeah, yeah, that was a big reason a lot of people were interested. And then right before we closed around, we're like, we're not going to do this. And we were terrified to tell them. And it's funny, we were talking about this the other day with like a new employee and we were like, actually looking back on it, that might be the thing that someone would look at and think, probably good decision. These people, maybe they know what they're doing. But back then it was quite terrifying. Um, and it ended up being the right decision. I mean, today, Wistia is like all for small, medium-sized businesses. Even all the content stuff we've done and continue to do. You know, we built this studio. We're making tons of shows. We had one ten one hundred that came out last year. Like all of these things, they make sense at scale. They make sense for lots of people to see them. And had we just gone down that route of being only for enterprise, I don't think we would have been able to flex these muscles the same way. Now, you continued to build a business, yet you kept the uh, fundraising at a minimum. You raised that angel round, and that that was uh, it. If Right or like? How yeah, did you we did fund- two angel rounds. Two, one was okay. six hundred fifty thousand in uh, two thousand eight. The other one was seven hundred seventy-five thousand in twenty ten. Okay, but so that's like it. one point four million total. Yeah. So, why did you decide to continue to kind of grow Wistia on its own merit versus going out and you know the deal sizes were probably different then. Of you could probably have raised five million, then a ten million, right? Um, yeah. Why, why? Why not go that path where most entrepreneurs do? We were just. I mean, we were concerned about optionality, um, and we also always felt like, well, what we we wanted to have our options open, and like fundraising makes sense, I think, if you're raising money to serve existing growth. Like, if you have channels that are working and you want to throw more money into those channels, and there's a lot, there's a lot of opportunity there, then I think it makes sense. But when you're trying to spend more money in an attempt to grow, you don't know what's going to work. And for us, we kept asking the question, like, well, if we had another million dollars in the bank, what would we do differently? And the question was always like, almost no different. We'd almost do nothing different. And then as the company got bigger, it was like, if we had another 5 million in the bank, what would we do? If we had 10 million in the bank, what would we do? And we just, I think we were very fortunate that the team was so small for so long that by the time we got traction, we realized team size does not correlate with traction at all. Like if they're independent things. Um, and we just felt like, if we don't need the money, like why raise it? Why give up control? Why also bring other people into the mix who um, aren't going to have the same incentives as us? Yeah, I think it's. Um, I'm. We have made a lot of mistakes over the years. That was one that I don't know how we avoided that because there were a lot of people who like the growth of the business was pretty swift, and a lot of people would say even if we didn't know what we were to do with the money. Hey, if you can raise the money, it's a good time, you know, have it around. You yeah. might hit some inflection point. Have it for a rainy, rainy day. day. And we were just never comfortable with that because we were having fun, things were growing, and we weren't convinced that we could use that money to grow faster. And, there's, and then eventually there's a few cautionary tales of like people, very small number, and they don't tell them publicly. But you talk to someone who's like, yeah, I raised money for a rainy day. We had an extra $4 million in the balance sheet. You're like, yeah, that seems good. And there's no pressure, but then a year later, someone's like, why do we have this money in the bank? And you should probably, you should start probably spend it. That. And so then they do, and they hire 20 people, and they start building up another product line. Everyone gets excited because all those metrics you disclose externally, like the team size, are growing. And so you have these metrics that feel like your business is good, when actually that thing you're doing is failing in, in that particular case. So we talked to the founder who wasted the $4 million, hired 20 people, had to lay them all off. The core team lost motivation. They got distracted from the thing that was important to them in the first place. And it was like, hey, this isn't as good as it seems. Um, and, you know, the other thing that people will say is like raise money to take money off the table. Um, and I think there's like, you know, valid, that's a valid idea. And I think it's, it's a good thing to think about. 
But we also had talked to many folks who had done that, and they were no happier. In fact, in many cases, they were less happy. Um, yeah, the thinking there is if you take money off the table, you, you as your business grows, you might become more risk averse because all your wealth is tied up in that business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, for whatever reason, I mean, it's a personal thing, I think. For us, we found we take the most, like the risk we like to take are creative risks, and we can do that while being profitable. Yeah. We the the idea of taking you know having more money in the bank personally to take bigger risks with the business like some of those would be like big financial risks that we f- feel like generally if we can't if if there isn't a scalable channel for growth there that those are like the reckless risks where I feel like we're we do a lot better with the ones that are would be considered creative risks well, and that we were yeah. always comfortable taking and those. even I think with the back to the content marketing but we start doing that because we're profitable. And, you know, it was, I remember when we made the, those videos that you're talking about with like the DIY lighting video and the other ones, we'd made a bunch of videos too that were like, this is how, what professional video hosting is. And this is what you should, and that stuff was not, that stuff makes sense to make. So it's like, this will get us more like customers because anyone who watches this is going to want the product. And this stuff seemed like it wasn't going to get us customers. But at some point you're profitable enough for like, well, over the long term, if we really can help people, maybe they'll remember us. And maybe they'll tell others about it. And maybe we can grow an audience around that other content. And it was just being, simply being profitable actually was the solution for us instead of having to raise money. Um, and yeah, I think it's, uh, it's funny, but in our market in particular, we've had a bunch of competitors that have raised money and then got out of business. Because guess what? Like they tried to grow the revenue so fast and it wasn't there that they died and we just kept chugging along and kept growing and gobbled up their customers when they went out of business. And like, it's just a, it's just a different approach it's, and it's, it's worked for us. Yeah. I think that's a funny thing that we've learned through that is it, it is very conventional wisdom that if you're not taking a lot of money uh, and spending it really quickly, that you're not taking a risk with the business and yeah. you're not taking this big swing. But in practice, I think a lot of that is like what you said. It's, it is mostly taking these big short-term risks that if they don't pay off, the business, you know, it goes out of business or you have to make some big change. We have found that being profitable allows us to take these very long-term bets yeah. and not have to see an immediate reward. At, at least like, that's what has worked for our business. And a lot of those things I feel like are the things that seem obvious, but you can't track them. Yeah. And some people might say that's a bigger, if you look back, that might be a bigger risk. Yeah. You've spent this much money on content marketing over like five years without seeing like a very direct payback. Like, yeah. why are you a lunatic? Why would you do that? Yeah. The other thing you brought up uh, is the control aspect. So if you do raise funding, uh, obviously the, uh, the investors are looking for a return on their investment and they're looking for a 10x or greater. Yeah. So there's that pressure of there needs to be an exit. We, we need to sell this company or go public or something, right? There's, Which there's be makes, our, yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense, right? Like investors are investing in you to get money. And then the way venture investing works is it's, you know, the, the returns of a portfolio are made by the few companies that return over 10x. And so they, they need those few companies and the other ones they don't really need. So it is, makes perfect sense that a venture investor is going to push you as hard as possible to be the greater than 10x thing. That's how their model works. That's what they're signing up for. I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand that because the investors have a portfolio that mitigates the risk and the entrepreneur doesn't. And so, um, you know, there's those serial entrepreneurs sometimes who I feel bad for them. They get burned when they raise money and they push it and it doesn't work and they push it, it doesn't work. And then they're, they're trying again and again and again. And that first idea might actually have been, been good enough 
they'd be completely life-changing for them had they just not raised the money. Let's bring everything to the fold now. Let's talk about your business, Wistia. Like there's lots of different products that you guys do. So what's the, what's the current state of the business? So today we have two products. Um, so Wistia has continued to evolve. It's evolved into a video marketing platform. So all the tools to get video onto your site, uh, customize that experience, understand how it's performing, integrate into all your other marketing tools. Like if you're a marketer, you want to understand the ROI of video or get more out of video, that's what Wistia is for. Um, a little more than a year ago, we launched a product called Soapbox, which is designed to help people get comfortable starting to make videos. It's like the product version of the content that we've done. And so that's a Chrome extension that lets you record your webcam and your screen and lets you edit between them. Um, and then, as you, because we've talked a little bit about we're investing, we continue to invest a lot in content. Um, and last year, we did a, a feature-like documentary. It was called 110100 that we're really excited about. Um, exactly the type of thing that we were able to do because we were profitable. Never could have done that uh, <laughs> before. Um, and then actually in t late 2017, November of 2017, we did a buyback. And so we had an opportunity that year to sell the company. And uh, we were Wait, not so in the so Meaning you were approached for an acquisition. Yes. Yeah. And we have been a pro, I mean, if you have a growing business, it's likely people are going to come poking around. That had happened to us numerous times. We were always very quick to say like, that's like flattering, but we're on our own, you know, like we like operating this business. We want to do this. At the time that we were approached, we were approached by multiple, multiple uh, companies at the same time. And both of us were not uh, having the most fun at this time. We were like in a like pretty rough spot with the business, not, communicating very well to each other about that, not admitting that to each other. So when these offers came in, we're like, oh, well, what do you think? Yeah, well, I might as well, yeah. well take, a take a look. Take a look, yeah, <laughs> what should we do with this? What do you think here? Oh. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a funny moment because we did play through all the scenarios of like, all right, sell this company. It's a good company, like the people, but like they don't want us there more than two years. We're not going to be there more than two years. We're not going to be able to work for anybody else. So we're going to leave. What are we going to do after we leave? Well, we have a bunch of other ideas of things we want to do. We love video. We love video and there's things in that space we're excited about doing. Now, who could we do that with? You start to make the list of the people you could do it with. And what type of brand would we build? And you're like, what type of company? Okay, so what we're saying is we try to be rebuild Wistia, but why? Why are we saying we need to rebuild Wistia? Because there's a problem. And it forced us to look in the mirror and recognize that we were actually not running the business the way we wanted to. And we, it's kind of, the whole thing is very ironic because we spent a few <laughs> years running the company like we were venture-backed, investing more into growth than we were making. So we had cash reserves. And so we were running the business as a loss, at a loss. And we were trying everything we could do to grow faster, taking what would seem like more financial risk. And we learned this lesson that actually made everyone short-term focused. And so we were not, it was all optimization. It was all super short-term stuff. And then when, at this moment, we realized we wanted, we wanted to fix things, things were broken. We're like, well, to do that, we should, we're gonna have to, first of all, we're gonna be misaligned with those angel investors we talked about because they need a return and we're turning down a return. Second, our employees, we've been giving them options, especially early employees. And we told them there'd be an exit. And now we're saying there's not gonna be an exit. So we need to take care of them. Um, and we hit on the idea of raising debt and using the debt to let us do a buyback. And so the buyback would be an offer to those investors and to the team saying, it's like we're selling the company at this price, sell as much as you want. And then that would 
because we would now have debt in the business, that would force us to be profitable again, to service the debt. And we thought that that would get us back to the creative risk-taking that we loved, and that we thought would also actually be beneficial for the company, it would force us to be, um, to focus more in the long term. But yeah, it was a big risk because the business we had, like Chris said, we've been running it uh, not profitably, which makes raising debt challenging if you're not a profitable business. The growth of the business had been decelerating because we were focused so much on uh, short-term um, wins instead of actually like keeping with the long-term stuff that had worked for us traditionally in the past. And so, yeah, that was a pretty like big leap of faith. I mean, we felt comfortable with it because we thought uh, investors are going to get a great return. Employees, especially early employees who've been here, it's basically like we had sold the business. A lot of the risk we're taking on and that if this all like blows up we would be fine knowing that you know for the most part like everybody else has been taken care and of. we'd be better on ourselves again i mean it was like starting whiskey in the first place we're 23 it was probably the best risk we ever could have taken you know and then in this moment we're like well we better ourselves once and it worked like maybe we should try again and if it doesn't at least we won't regret that we tried, you know? Um, yeah, we were doing things the way we wanted to yeah. do it, which is what had made us unhappy in the first place, that we were yeah. like the frog being boiled by trying to chase growth through doing short-term stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the wild thing from this has been the company got more profitable than we were expecting. Um, the team got really aligned because some people left, which makes perfect sense. This wasn't what we said it was going to be before. But everyone who stayed and all the people we hired are like, they want to be in a business that makes money. <laughs> they want to understand what that's like. Um, and, you know, things like we, we, we disclose our monthly financials internally and talk through them. And we've been doing that for years. And usually, you know, you can watch the eyes like glaze over a little bit, like during that part of yeah, the meeting. Yeah, someone says EBITDA, everyone's like, what? Yeah. don't yeah. care, what is that? And then right after this, guess what? We introduced profit sharing and... How many questions were there at the first meeting? <laughs> like we went through the financials. Yeah. What is this yeah. offsite? How much does this cost? Yeah. What is, where, how is are this, we spending yeah. enough in professional development? Is that too much over there? Is there a more efficient way over here? Like our infrastructure team came back and they're like, we think we can improve gross margin. Should we work on this? It's going to take like three weeks. We're like, okay, they go work on it, improve gross margin, margin dramatically. Everyone, they tell everyone, everyone goes wild. <laughs> it's just like, oh, this is what a company is. You charge more than what it costs to make the thing. That's how you hire people. That's how you do things. That's what it is. It's this very simple old idea. Um. <laughs> it's, just, it's like fun. It's ironic, like you said, because we've been trying for so long to get people to care about this stuff. Like we've always operated transparently. We had been profitable. Yeah. We talked a lot about that to people. Nobody really cared until like transform things and the profit sharing obviously helped with that too. It did, it did help, yeah. You talked about transparency, which has been very core to this conversation. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're very open, not only to your employees, but to the general public. So when you took on this debt financing, you published like a very detailed post that led you down this path to a decision. Mm -hmm. what, so why do you feel the need to be so transparent, not just internally, but externally? We felt like... Uh, a bunch of reasons, but like probably the two major ones is like, we feel like people who are dealing with Wistia should know what we're up to. Like, just like, it would not be good for us not to be clear with customers and partners um, and potential employees. Like, this is what we're about and this is what we're doing. Um, that seems like the right thing to do. And then- Well, and besides being the right thing to do that, um, 
if this, we were proud of this, even though it was scary, we were proud of what we were doing because we felt like it aligned with the company's values. And we thought if you were a customer of Wistia, you really believe in what we're doing, this will reinforce that. Yes. And you'll, you should be excited for what the future holds because yes. we're going to be kind of getting back to some of the stuff that like brought you here in the first place of the longer term thinking. And then we also had kind of, we'd gone through that existential crisis of like, what are we going to be and who are we? And it was pretty hard to find other examples of companies that were, you know, growing revenue really fast and really profitably. And people loved working there. Those companies exist. There's actually a lot of them. They just don't like to tell you that because it turns out if you're in like a really profitable space, often you don't want more competition. And so they, um, and we had worked hard to find a lot of those folks and to like realize what we were, the risk we were taking was actually didn't seem that crazy. And we felt like if there are other entrepreneurs who are going to be in the same position as us, which of course there will be, they built a company that they love. They built a company that can prioritize the customer experience and the employee experience and their community, like more than they would be able to otherwise. Um, we should, we should do a service to entrepreneurs and just like tell them what we've learned. And hopefully if that can help and like, two people avoid the crisis that we went through, um, then that will be worth it. Yeah. Like growing Wistia, MailChimp has been a big inspiration to us. They've been private company, no investment in, huge commercial success, and able to take bigger and bigger creative risks as they've scaled. And just being able to, like at moments where we have some self-doubt, being able to point to them and look and say, look, these people did this. We thought that would be really helpful for anybody else who kind of wanted to take an alternate path. And the other piece is in software and tech, equity funding is like, that's all there is really. <laughs> Debt is very uncommon. We didn't even know when we struck on that idea, most of our advisors were like, what? Like, what is that? Why would you ever do that? Like, that seems like a bad idea. Just no one had any experience with that it. That just sounds bad. People, yeah, people will say like, scary. how does it feel to have $17 million in debt? And we're like, well, do you have a mortgage? Do you know how that works? Like, <laughs> do you feel comfortable with your mortgage? Like, if you are making enough, you feel comfortable with your mortgage, it's the same thing. And it's just like, and it was scary for us too at first until we dug into it, understood it, and understood the risks that we were actually taking. Um, and then we got really comfortable and realized, wait a second, like, again, why don't more people know about this as an option? You don't have to take it. There's a million other options, but like, it's probably an option you should know about. Your culture is also something that you're known for. Uh, and it seems like th that was key to your company since day one. So how have you thought about building your culture? And then how do you maintain the culture as you grow? Yeah, it's, it's you know, we, it was funny. People would ask us in like the first year um, when we were having, getting no traction, how's it going? We're like, going pretty great. Like, uh, we, we, <laughs> We're having fun. Yeah, we were just like that. We always loved the challenge and we didn't understand how much we'd love the challenge and how much we'd love like being in control of our own destiny. Like, what should we do today? I don't know. Let's come up with a list of things to do and then go do it. Like, that's a simple thing, but it, that was always really exciting. And again, like we kept the team size really small for a long time. Six years into Wistia, we were like five people. And that did not feel like external success, right? People would ask us how it's going. We're like, well, we're like five people. I was good for you. Good for you guys. You know, that's kind of what we heard. Um, but we were loving what we were doing then. And we, we felt like we had something special where if we'd had 20 people we would have killed it, you know? So we just realized early that it was important. Um, and, and we started talking, yeah. once we realized that that was a big motivator for us of 
really enjoying what we were doing and the people, <laughs> the three other people on the team, we started talking about it early, which I remember at the time felt really bizarre because that's like yes. a corporate, right? You're a five person team and you want to talk about your culture, like what culture It's five people working together, but being clear about some of those things that were important to us and the other people on the team was really helpful. And those things have changed over time. Like we don't think about culture as something that is maintained. It's something that evolves, but it was, is really helpful to have that like very front and center about how people are thinking about the company, why they're joining, why they're, um, why they're there. Yeah. And today it's like, I think today there's very rigid systems and structures. So, you know, we have our values, our values are to enact our strategy. Like we culture is how you live out your strategy. And the, when we're hiring for people, we're looking for those values and people are being promoted when they're putting in stretch roles, when people are fired, like when the recognition and how that works internally, it's all designed, like even our performance reviews use our values so that when you are getting your, your biannual performance review or you understand how you're doing, that all is directly fits into helping to um, enhance like Wistia decision-making and the Wistia culture. And of course changes, but the goal is try to make it feel the way that it felt to us when it was small. And it's cool because I mean, we're hundred and a little more than hundred people today and it feels like it did when we were 10. And um, it's taken, but to get there, <laughs> it's not like, let's go get lunch and hang out. It's, it's like tons of systems and structure and, and formal process that allows it to feel a, a similar way. The, the other thing you mentioned transparency and we've, uh, since like pretty early on from that like team page, that insight there, we've always, the videos and the content feature people who work here. And so we're very open about that. Video is obviously a very good way to show that off because it communicates a lot. And we're very, have been very obsessed over the years with asking people who uh, start, how is the experience here different than what you saw when you go to the website or you watch our content and making sure those things are in parity and match. Um, and that we say like the inside should match the outsides. And that has been really helpful for attracting people who, you know, want that, you know, it's, this, this is a culture, you know, it's great for us, but it's not for everybody. Um, I think people can like self-select into that. And also like we have our problems, right? Like, and so anything that is like a little bit odd about which, like that's getting portrayed to the outside and like a light is being shine on this instead of you show up for an interview and um, you know, the marketing team had created this like world that you see and then you actually enter the office and it's like completely disjoint um, and different. So that's something that's been, uh, yeah, we've been, we've worked pretty hard on over the years to make those things align. One of the favorite videos that I remember watching from you guys was um, like, it was like a USA for Africa or a live aid video where everyone had like their, their uh, headsets yes. on and they're all singing, right? Yeah. So how do you do casting? How does that determine of who appears in these videos? Cause it's, it is your employees. That's it's just, it was like a Slack open call for who's available at this time to <laughs> yeah. shoot. And that was probably like two thirds of the office. <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the things that ends up happening if people work here is you end up you end up learning how to get comfortable on camera and you end up learning how to make videos basically in every role. There's an image release form that you have to sign when you, uh, when you join. Yes. You join. Yeah. yeah. And it's been funny. It's an awesome. And we've had people who have joined in support and sales who have gone on to be, you know, the video people at other companies. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just starts by like, you know, we need help. This is going to take 30 minutes. Do you want to do it? You jump in and you get more comfortable and, 
that's the that's it's the environment of the culture hopefully that's helping helping to make that happen so what's your plan for future growth for wistia so we have a lot of things in the works um which most of the things we can't talk about we have a bit but we have a big launch coming up in the fall which we're really excited about um and uh yeah i mean i think you're gonna see us do bigger more of what we've been doing and being it bigger and doing it different. And I mean, this studio is a good example indication of that. A good of indication <laughs> of, of things to come. But um, yeah, we, you know, we've last year was awesome because we got really profitable. Um, we were able to take much bigger risks, more creative risks. Like one ten one hundred is one of the best things we've ever done. Um, really proud of it. And it opened our eyes to like a new way of thinking about content. Um, so we're pushing bigger on doing more shows um, getting more people involved in those shows, thinking about different cadences, thinking about longer form content. So there's a lot of, a lot of good stuff coming. Yeah. Cause when you talk about the show, like that is a major production. And then it was actually released on, was it Netflix that was released on Amazon? Yeah. I'm sorry. Amazon. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so how do you get a show produced by a company that's an online video platform company producing a show that ends up on Amazon? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you got to know the right people, I think. Uh, <laughs> um, no, there's, there's Amazon has a program you can apply to. So they make it pretty easy. Netflix is quite hard to, to get in there. Um, but um, yeah, for us, it was like, you know, even the, the way that 110 and 100 ended up happening was we knew Sandwich Video, which is this video agency in LA. We'd, we'd had them at one of our conferences. We we're talking about doing something together and hit on this concept of, uh, how about we give you a budget of $111,000 and you make three different videos for us at different budgets. One at a $1,000 budget, one at a $10,000 budget, one at a $100,000 budget. And they would all be ads for our product soapbox. And we had on that idea, they got really excited about it. And we thought we'd just go and document it and we'd end up with a couple blog posts. Like maybe we'll have like two blog posts like talking about this. And the team went out there and they came back and they're like, um, this is not two. This is way bigger for us to do justice to this, this is not like a month-long project. This is many months. And it, it, we realized that there was something much bigger there. And it was actually like very core to how people think about marketing with video in general, which was like, how should you be thinking about budgets? How do you tell a great story? What is the link between creativity and money? And that's what the documentary explored. And then we saw even before... It was released. We released the three ads and those took off and people got really excited about the trailer. We realized that there was something we tapped into um, that was bigger than us, which is really exciting. Um, and kind of like back to that creative risk taking, what, so that's a big risk because we're taking like a big part of our marketing team and creative team and focusing on, the, on this project, which will not have immediate returns most definitely uh, for like six to nine months. Their work is like pretty all consuming. And so we looked at the project itself and thought this is going to be so beneficial to us on a number of different levels. Like Chris enumerated a bunch of them. There's also the other like meta aspects of it is we serve marketers. This is an interesting thing to try that we will certainly learn a lot from no matter if it succeeds or fails that we can teach other people about what happened here. And so we kind of like stack all those things up and think about it and say, this is a risk that makes sense for the business to take very much like aligned with where we want to do and where we want to go. And it felt really good. That's like coming off that buyback to be able to do that. I think prior to that, like Chris said, we present that to other people, invest, they'd be like, what are you, are you, what? Like, how about we just like 
optimize the pricing page or like, what are you, what are you doing? Well, was, why would you want to do this? I mean, there was internal confusion for a while with that one. It's like, why, what, what? And it, and it was like, just, just trust, trust the team. Everybody trust them. We're going to have something good. And then it wasn't until people, I think, saw the first, you know, there's, it's in broken in four parts. They saw the first part. I'm like, well, that looks actually, I learned a lot in that. It was quite good. And then you watch the trailer, you're like, okay, there's something really here. Um, but yeah, what, it's a long time. I mean, it was probably, it was about a year from when the project mm -hmm. began to when it, we actually released it. Um, and then it's cool because, like, it's the way that, as Brennan's saying, when you layer up all those risks, you, the first way you're going to hear that anything is working is qualitative, like people are going to tell you. And uh, again, when you're profitable, that can be enough. That can be enough at the beginning. Um, and so we got lots of comments and lots of people telling us and started coming up in support conversations and sales conversations. And then it's like, well, there's no questions having an impact. Now let's see how it shows up with the numbers and wait a few months and yep, starts to show up very dramatically. But like, it's, you know, it's, that's, that's the type of, those are the types of risks we like to take. And that's what we're trying to set up with you to do. We've talked a lot about the different, uh, decisions you've made over the course of building Wistia. Um, was there a decision you made that you look back and you're like, I can't believe we actually did that. What a dumb idea or dumb decision. Yes. Well, the big one, the most embarrassing one of all of them is we had what was working really well, a profitable business focused on the long term, but his content marketing was working very successfully and we were growing at a very fast clip. Then we thought to ourselves and got advice from other people, we are too profitable. Shouldn't we be able to grow faster by spending more money? And then we basically undid and broke everything that we had worked so hard to do and then spent a lot of money and energy trying to get back to that place, which is what that was a very costly uh, mistake, I would say, both financially and emotionally. <laughs> it's, but it, it's been also really helpful because I feel like this time around, that, that failure has like what is what turned this like instinct that we had about operating profitably and how good that would be into actual conviction. I truly hope that we will not. <laughs> we won't make that mistake again. We won't make that mistake again. But it is actually funny, the transparency piece, because we figured out at some point, if you take a risk and it's, and it's horrible, like it ends up poorly, we made many, many bad decisions. If you can teach people about that bad decision or you can teach people about the thing that didn't work, that often does work out. And so it, it's like this safety net of like, there's been so, if you go look at, we've written many blog posts about, we didn't have an org structure until we were 30 people because we thought it'd be too hierarchical and it just created chaos because everybody just assumed that they went to one of us, but like we couldn't manage that many people and have no idea how to do that well. And then like I'm making some decisions, Brian's making some decisions, other people make it's decision making was super confusing. So this thing we thought was like super magic, it was a horrible decision, but we wrote about it and talked about it. Once we figured it out, people were like, wow, they figured it out. That's so great. Um, and that was one of the things we've learned over the years is transparency is like really helpful because when you do make those mistakes, if you actually tell people about them, that's the learning moment and that's the learning moment internally and that's the learning moment externally. And, um, you have to do it enough to see that like it does help other people and then it makes you more confident to do that. It makes it easier to take the risks. You guys are really busy building a, a successful business, uh, outside of work. What do you like to do? Oh, you go first on that one. Um, I have a seven-month-old at home, so most of my extra time is spent playing and caring for him, which is, which is very fun. 
and I have, I have two kids. I have a, a three and a half year old and a one and a half year old. So they keep me pretty busy. Um, I've been rock climbing a lot, only indoors for safety, but uh, enjoying that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing your story. I, I mean, it's a, it's a great story. And there are these uh, you know, levels of transparency that you share. So I think just so many entrepreneurs near, need to hear this version of a story of success and growth. So Brennan and Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to share it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Take it easy. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.